All right. Good morning, friends. I've missed uh, being with you guys. <sighs> Glad to be back. I'm filled with joy to be back with all of you. And some of you are like, I didn't even know he was gone because you were gone too. And I'm glad that you're back and that we're all gathered together uh, this morning. And we're, this morning, we're going to continue our journey through this month of December, this Christmas season. Uh, we're doing this four-week study. We're in the second week right now, and it's called Age of the Messiah King, Discovered and Dismissed. And last week, uh, our friend Jonathan Garland, he was up here, and he was filling in for me. And you all were able to explore together the uncommon name of our Messiah King, and how the titles given to the promised Messiah pointed to him not just being the Savior, but it pointed to him being the ultimate sovereign, the, the king that is above all kings, the one that is appointed by God, not voted on by us, the people. And this morning, we are going to delve deeper into these couple verses uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And these are the key scriptures that we're going to be in for this whole month. We're going to look today at the Messiah's rule and how it currently resonates in our daily lives. How, how do we live with the reality of these promises that are pending? A topic that I'm sure resonates with many of us. Sophie and I, we spent the whole day on Thursday waiting, hoping on a promise to come to fruition, hoping that we, these plane tickets we got would ultimately deliver us home from our vacation. And I think uh, on Thursday morning, we woke up with more anticipation and excitement to come home and be with our kids and be back with our community than we had when we left to go on our vacation. There was more, more excitement in coming home than there was in preparing to leave. Um, and even as we uh, left two weeks ago, I, I couldn't contain myself. I was so excited. Uh, I was pulling out my laptop and mapping out uh, the, the sermons and all the teaching that I'm going to do over the next couple months. And I'm just excited for this season. I'm excited to celebrate with you all the incarnation of our risen Lord uh, in, a, in a fresh new way, in a way that we haven't looked at together before. And then after that, we get to dive in to our 21 days of prayer and fasting to start off the new year. And I'm full of excitement. I have great expectation for what the Lord is going to do here in our body in this next season. So excited. So much so that uh, Sophie had to remind me a couple times that we're on vacation. You need to put your, you need to put your computer away. You need, to, you need to just relax and be on vacation with me. And you know, it's, it's hard though. It's hard for me sometimes to find that line. Like when your faith... When, you're, uh, when literally your, your absolute reason for existence is your job also. Uh, but I was able to not get into any trouble on our vacation, and I was able to strike a good balance uh, with doing the work that I wanted to do, but also just enjoying the time away, being with my wife, collecting a little bit of sun and relaxing. But honestly... We're both more excited to be home than we were to leave. From the moment we woke up uh, on Thursday, through that whole day of travel, the, the taxi rides, the, the long airport layovers, the long, uncomfortable flights, what kept us moving was the promise of being back home by the end of the day, knowing that by midnight we would be home, and the eagerness to wake up the next morning surrounded by our kids. But when we landed in Anchorage, we thought, we're right there. We're at the finish line. We just got a couple more hours to go. Just two hours of driving, no problem. We can do this. That long day of travel had tested our patience, but we were holding on to this promise of a sweet reunion with our family. And little did we know as we were walking to the baggage claim that our journey was far from over. 
There wasn't a ton of snow, I think, that fell on Thursday night, but it just so happened to be very thick in the two hours we needed to be on the road. Driving through a snowstorm for two hours is not the grand finale that anyone dreams of when they set out on a vacation. So exhausted and jet-lagged and craving to just be home in our own beds, yours truly had to uh, navigate the chaos of the roads. And it was probably the worst driving, one of the top five worst driving experiences I've had in the 36 years of living in Alaska and driving on these roads. For the few moments that I could actually see in front of me the roads, it, it, the road just seemed endless. Each mile that we drove, it felt like an eternity, uh, but there was a glimmer of hope. There was a promise that kept us going. The assurance that at the end, there was a happily ever after that was waiting for us. Something good at the end of a challenging journey. So in the midst of this snowstorm, I couldn't help but to draw parallels to the promise that Christmas draws our mind to every season. The promises that we are waiting on to be fulfilled. Often we find ourselves about halfway maybe to our happily ever after. We face unexpected challenges. We endure hardships that test our resolve but we cling to the promises. We cling to these promises that we find in God's word that are there for us, that they're, they're there like a guiding light to the path of fulfillment. But that path isn't always smooth. And in our exploration of God's word this morning, we're gonna ponder the concept of God's unseen realm and the fulfillment of the coming kingdom, Jesus Christ the Messiah is bringing in a message that we're going to call Promise Pending, Halfway to Happily Ever After. If you have your Bible with you today, please go to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have one, we have some up here in the front on the heater on these two boxes. Uh, pl please feel free. Anytime you're here without one, come and grab one. Uh, if you don't own one, let me know. That's a situation that we want to remedy for you. Our primary text, like I said, is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, but we're going to start off this morning by reading uh, the first seven verses of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9. <clears throat> but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The context of the promise that Isaiah is prophesying of is, it's a bleak one. The year was about 732 BC, about 10 years before the northern kingdom of Israel will be pulverized and plundered by the Assyrian war machine. 
that was at this time flexing their muscles on the neighboring nations. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah, they were scrambling for security and for peace. They were attempting to put their civil war on hold so that they could band together to protect themselves from the impending doom that the Assyrians would bring with their scorched earth policy for war. Fear for the Israelites, both in the northern kingdom of Israel and the smaller southern kingdom of Judah, fear was mounting. Conditions within Israel and Judah, they were just as dark, just as dire as those on the outside. Spiritual, moral, political darkness hung over the nation. For Israel, it was all gloom and doom. It was like they were in the midst of one long night and they were hopeless to make it to morning. Despair and darkness encapsulated the people of Israel and Judah. But especially for those in the region of the Galilee, the northern part of Israel, because Isaiah says that they would be the first to feel the boot of the enemy. A thick darkness had wrapped around the land like a heavy blanket. For a world that was trapped in such darkness, for a world that had grown weary, weary physically, weary emotionally, spiritually weary, weary of the bad politics that ruled over them. Husbands were weary. Mothers and children were weary of the life that they were living. The grandparents and business owners were weary. The land was weary for the widows and the orphans and the foreigners that dwelt there. But what could be done? What could save them from this weary, bleak, dire existence? The answer is simple. It's staggeringly simple for such a foreboding state of affairs. The answer is a baby. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, contend that we give our focus to the imminent arrival of a child, a precious baby boy, a baby that was destined to reign as king, and he alone would be capable of dispelling the darkness with the light of his truth and transforming sorrow into joy. This coming infant alone would possess the extraordinary ability to snatch a victory from the jaws of defeat. This baby boy promises to shine his glorious, overpowering light into the midst of this gloom and doom. Astonishingly, God's remedy for all the shadows, for all the sorrows that have haunted us, they're all encapsulated in the vulnerability of an infant, a divine response to darkness and despair, a divine response to every darkness and despair that has ever cast a shadow over our lives. You may be in the midst of it now. How, how am I gonna pay this heating bill that I got? Do I have enough firewood to get me through this winter? Is my boss going to understand uh, the mistake that I made? Are they going to show me understanding for this? Does my spouse really respect me? Do they really love me? Will my prodigal child ever return? God, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized you in your life, it is a little baby. This unassuming baby would grow up to bear the sins of the world as his own. He would grow up to pay a debt 
that he didn't know to reconcile us to God the Father. Yet we find ourselves at odds with our flesh. We find ourselves falling to the false promises of temptation, wrestling with the unseen realm, not living in a day where there is peace on earth. We don't live in a day where there is goodwill towards men. So today we are going to plot a course to discover if Jesus, if he has already paid it all, why does it seem as though the promise is still pending? Where is our happily ever after? When Jesus' cousin John, when he'd been arrested, the gospel writer Matthew, he records for us that Jesus, he goes from Nazareth into the region of Galilee. And he goes there and he begins to minister. And Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And he says this of Jesus, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness has seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus is fulfilling the promise. Jesus is the light that is shining in the darkness. He was the light that was prophesied by Isaiah. Jesus is the light of the world who brings forgiveness and life to all who trust in him and hand their lives over to him. Just as Isaiah predicted, the first territory that experienced the Assyrian invasion, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, Isaiah also predicted they would be the first ones to see the messianic glory. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. Nazareth is the ter territory of Zebulun. And Capernaum, the place where Jesus set up his headquarters for his ministry in Galilee, that's Naphtali. For Isaiah's original audience, the light was coming. For us, the light has already come. And the response to the coming of the light of Jesus should be an overflow of gladness, an overflow of rejoicing. Each verse in Isaiah chapter 9, 4 through 6, begins with the word for, providing three reasons or three explanations for this weary world to rejoice. First, he tells us that the burden is going to be lifted. Israel's oppressors will be destroyed. Then he tells us that all weapons of war, they're going to be burned. They're going to be destroyed forever. And most importantly, lastly, a baby will be born. The focus is on the nature and the names of this child in this, in this section. And this is what Garland was here. This is what he taught on last week. I'm going to quickly review that now. These first two phrases, a child will be born and a son will be given. This emphasizes his humanity. This emphasizes the humanity and the deity of Jesus. He will be born. That's how humans enter the world. We are born, but also he will be given. This speaks of the eternal sonship and divinity of Jesus. Jesus existed before he was born. He was already God. He was already the second person of the Trinity before he was given to us as a savior, as a baby. This builds on the truth of his virgin birth that was prophesied in chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah. That is the child's true nature. He is fully God and fully man. He is the God-man. He is, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And there are more names for Jesus crowded into Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 than anywhere else in scripture. The child is a wonderful counselor. He is incomprehensible. He's exceptional. He's marvelous. He's surpassing all human thought. He's one who is a formulator of a plan of action. The child who brings joy is an incomprehensible counselor. He guides his people through all the decisions of life. And he's also mighty God. This is an absolute statement of the deity of Jesus. 
Jesus wasn't just a good man. He was mighty God. The child born is the son of the living God. The infant is infinite. That little baby lying helpless in Mary's lap, he created the universe. He holds the whole universe together. He is mighty God. And when Isaiah calls Jesus everlasting father, he's not confused on which member of the Trinity that he is. He's not confusing Jesus the son with father God. He's not saying that Jesus is God the father. Saying Jesus and the father are two persons who are one in essence or substance. But Jesus is also an everlasting father. Messiah is a father for his people. Jesus is always father. He is a father for all time. And like a good father, Jesus watches over you. Jesus protects you and praises you and he provides for you like a good father. And he is also the prince of peace. And in this context, Isaiah is not speaking of your personal peace. He's not speaking of inner peace for you. He does provide that, but not here. That's not what he's saying here. Jesus will provide peace, inner peace, personal peace for everyone who commits to walking worthy of the call that he places on their life. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about here. Isaiah is prophesying of a national peace, a true and lasting peace. This is a promised peace in a world that is full of chaos. This peace puts an end to all famine and war. It puts an end to corrupt government dictators. This is a a peace far greater than Oppenheimer could ever give us with his bomb. He will enact a peace treaty that no one could ever usurp. This is true peace on all of earth. Jesus will bring peace to this planet. He will bring war to an end. This is a kingdom that is yet to be established. We don't live there yet. When Jesus returns, peace will blanket the earth. In the time of Isaiah's writing, great rulers, they would often hang these golden cords around their neck or over their shoulders, and this would serve as a symbol to people of their authority. Isaiah says, the government is upon his shoulders. Verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He carries the governments of the world on his shoulders. He will come one day to rule and reign physically here on this earth. The government of this earth and all its responsibilities will rest upon his shoulders. National defense, healthcare, justice, infrastructure, law enforcement. There's not gonna be any more elections. There's gonna be no more bureaucracy. There will be no more courts. Jesus will reign as sovereign Over the world. The Hebrew word translated as government in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 is misra. It means dominion, power, sovereignty through legal authority. Israel's savior was to be the sovereign king. And the Messiah's government and its peace. It will not see an end. Seven centuries after Isaiah prophesied this, an angel shows up in Gabriel's, or the angel Gabriel shows up to speak to this teenage girl, Mary. And he tells her that she is going to give birth to the harbinger of this peace. That she would see the fulfillment of our halfway to happily ever after. Luke chapter one, verse 32 says, this is Gabriel speaking to Mary. He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Consider these words. Think about this. The government will be on his shoulders. Does your mind get directed to the cross when you hear that? Do you think about the cross when you think of the government resting upon the shoulders of Jesus? Do you imagine that cross that he bore on his shoulders as he walked to his place of death, as his flayed open flesh bled out, as his inaugural crown dug into his brow. Jesus Christ had the divine government, the dominion, power, and authority of the kingdom of heaven on his shoulders. All that rested on his shoulders when he bore the cross for our sins. When he despised and ignored the shame of the act that he once and for all would use to conquer sin, death, hell, and the devil. Paul acknowledged that Jesus is the head over every ruler and authority. And in Colossians 2, Paul writes that because of Jesus' sacrifice, he made us alive, in verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Does that not excite you? Do I got to light myself on fire to get a response? Come on. That's exciting. Come on. Amen, somebody. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? God not only forgave our sins, he restores our relationships. He completely destroys and rejects that sin through the cross. Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame. These authorities that Paul is referencing, they're not earthly authorities. These are spiritual authorities like the ones that Paul writes about in Ephesians 6. Paul tells us here that Jesus disarmed them. He openly shamed these spiritual authorities by triumphing triumphing over them in his finished work on the cross. If Jesus is the sovereign over all the governing, governance of this, of this world, both physical and spiritual, and there is no end to the peace that he brings, if he has freed us from the power of sin and death, if he has triumphed over the spiritual realm and he has triumphed over the physical realm and he has put all of his enemies to open shame, then why don't we live in a world where these promises are realized? Why is the promise still pending? And there's a theological term that's used to answer this that's very powerful. And it's just four words. It's already, but not yet. And here's what it means. We already have so much of what God has promised. Jesus has already risen from the grave. He's already ascended into heaven. You, if you are a believer, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are already a child of the living God. He's already purchased your freedom. We already sit with Christ in the heavenly places. We can already enter into the newness of life. We are with God. Everything he has and is, is ours. The kingdom of God has been unleashed. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. Every earthly power, every force, every opposition will bow down to the name of Jesus, willingly or unwillingly. 
But King Jesus and his reign, all of this is true right now. We don't have to wait for any of that. You and I as believers, we have immense privileges and they are all already true. But we find ourselves living in this tension. All of these things, they're all already true, but we're in this not yet phase. As disciples of Jesus, we find ourselves living in this tension between the already and the not yet. All of this is true, yet the apostle Peter, he still warns us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. All of this is true, but we still face persecution. We still face suffering. We're still waiting for the salvation that is kept in heaven for us. We live in this tension, and it's uncomfortable. God has worked in us, but we haven't yet experienced the fullness of the work yet, even though it's as good as done. And this leads us to confusion. This leads us to having mixed feelings because God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. But we still live in the middle of this broken, sick, dying world. We have been made new in Christ, but our world is only a shadow of that which is to come. God's kingdom has not come yet. There is a temptation to let the idea of the already and the not yet become this crutch in which we just lean all our failures on. We say, oh, well, we're made new, but I don't feel like I'm new. We're called to live by the Spirit, but how diligently do we actually uh, pursue living by the Spirit? When we examine this concept in in Scripture, we find that this is actually It should be a piece of encouragement. It should not be an excuse in which we heap our failures upon. Jesus said this in John chapter 18, verse 36. He says, my kingdom, it's not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. The disciples and most of Jesus' followers expected his kingdom to be an earthly kingdom when he first came. They expected that that peace that Isaiah prophesies about, the governments being on his shoulders, they expected an earthly ruler that would rule with peace and thwart all the enemies of Israel when he was first here 2,000 years ago. But he says, no, my My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. His kingdom has not yet been established in the physical yet. In Revelation chapter 21, John writes of seeing, he sees a new kingdom. He sees a new heaven and a new earth here. Jesus will have his physical kingdom here. It will show up, but not yet. Jesus is not yet ruling in the totality He is ruling. He is reigning. Nothing is left outside of his control, yet we do not see everything in subjugation to him. We are living in this tension of already and not yet. And John writes in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, he's writing to his church and calls them beloved. Let's start calling you guys beloved. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when it appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Here we find the best example of this concept. But before we start to get excited and think like, well, okay, like my work is over. I just have to wait for Jesus to come back. Like, I'm not as bad as I used to be, and I can just uh, 
I can just chill and wait till Jesus comes back and makes everything perfect. So it's okay if I just continue to live the way I live, uh, to continue to not pursue living by the Spirit, continue to not uh, mortifying the flesh daily, as Paul tells us. It's not an excuse. Like, none of us are perfect, and we will not be perfect until Jesus comes back and perfects us. But he gives us something to do. He gives us the work of sanctification to do as we live here on this earth. The Bible teaches us, God's word teaches us to walk out the work of sanctification in our lives. Six verses later, John writes this in verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. John is very direct and he's not, uh, sometimes he's not as gracious as maybe Paul. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's almost like John knew that some of us, maybe all of us at some point in our faith walk with the Lord. It's like he knew that we might find an excuse, that we might be tempted to fall to the flesh, that we might be tempted to live a life pursuing sin and not righteousness. And John is very direct when he goes after this issue of living in sin. This isn't like an accidental thing. This isn't like, oh, I stubbed my toe and I said a word that I'm not going to say in church, okay? Like, this is habitual sin. This is living out sin daily, daily choosing to live with sinful actions in your life. If you are part of God's family, you don't make it a practice of sinning. If you deliberately continue to sin, John, John says that it shows that you belong to the devil. So this idea of already and, been, and not yet, it's, it's far from an excuse. It is meant as an, an encouragement. Like often when I'm out with my kids and I'm taking them out hiking and stuff, and some of you guys have taken kids hiking, so you might understand this. If you don't, just bear with me. Uh, like if you go, ever to go out with kids and you're going on a hike and you tell them to try and encourage them, hey, we're almost there. Uh, we're almost to our destination, right, Mike? This happens every year on the beach hike. Say, yeah, we're almost there. It's just one more cove over. Almost every time that I tell my kids, we're almost there, guys, just a little bit further. One of them decides... Great, that means it's time to sit down and take a break. Or that means I'm gonna drag my feet now. I'm gonna go slower. I never mean this in a way to tell them, to, to give them like an excuse that they can stop putting in the work to get to the destination. I mean it as an encouragement. Like the end is near. The end is soon. This is an encouragement to continue to put in the work. Continue to live righteously. Know that you are made new but you will not be completely new until Christ appears. Resist the excuse to live in habitual sin. Resist, rest in the encouragement that we are not there yet, but the end is near. And when we get to this end, it will be glorious. One day, Christ will rule from the new Jerusalem and the world will see the government that is placed on his shoulders and this kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and he will reign forever. This is important for us today because you're human. You easily forget things. Like we like to make fun of the Israelites. They 
see, all, see God uh, rescue them from Egypt in the Exodus. They see all these miraculous plagues come and thwart the Egyptian. They walk through the parted Red Sea and they get out and they start grumbling and complaining against the Lord. We are exactly the same way. So don't look at the Israelites with contempt. You grow complacent in your life. You are a frail human. You forget about the promises that you have received from the Lord. We desire, Lord, give me more. Give me more. What are you going to do next for me, Lord? We're like spoiled children all too often. God, what's, what are you going to give me next? you're in good company because every other believer is just the same. The ultimate fulfillment of the promises are pending. We are in this place where, where we are halfway to happily ever after. And while we live here, while we wrestle with this tension, we have to learn to rejoice in the promise fulfilled yet per persevere in the journey towards a fully realized glorious future with Christ. As we find ourselves in the midst of another Christmas season, look at it as being in this juncture. We are in this moment where the promises are both being realized and pending. Discover Discover that on this journey of faith, you are living with this anticipation, much like the anticipation that Sophie and I felt when we were coming home on Thursday. We are halfway there. We are living in this tension of a, of a pending promise. Let this season, let this Christmas season be different than seasons past. Let this season be one where the joy and the wonder of living in this age of the Messiah King is not dismissed in lieu of the season of just getting presents or the pressure to outperform the generosity that you showed others around you in years past. But discover for yourself again the power that the promised Messiah brings. The power that the promised Messiah can accomplish in your life today. And if you're already living there, if you're already walking there, walk somebody else into that power. Help someone else discover that power for the first time. The promise of peace, the promise of justice and righteousness that is articulated by Isaiah Help someone else find that promise. The already part of our journey, it includes the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are God's children right now. Right now, we can experience newness of life. However, the not yet still looms largely over our heads. We are in the midst of a broken world. We still face trials. We still face persecution and ongoing struggle against the unseen realm. But God's word tells us that we overcome by the blood of the lamb. We overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ and thank you. Good job. The word of our testimony we are going to try something this morning. And you need to be able to quickly and succinctly in your life share with others what the Lord has done for you. And we're going to practice this right now. And I know all the introverts just got really upset. <laughs> and it's okay. You're not going to die. 
And the extroverts need to follow instructions, otherwise we're not going to do this again. I want you to think of, right now, think about your testimony. Think about what the Lord has done for you in your life. What has the Lord saved you from? Now all the extroverts, you're going to pray a prayer with me. Repeat after me. Lord, I know there's more extroverts in here than that. Lord, I admit that I am an extrovert. It's not a sin. It's okay. Please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to... Oh, hold on. Please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to boil my testimony down to a 30-second testimony that glorifies your wonder-working power. Amen. Okay, now all the introverts, repeat this prayer after me. And it should be way louder because I know way more of you are introverts than extroverts. Lord, I admit I am an introvert. Please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to articulate a 30-second testimony that glorifies your wonder-working power. Amen. Okay. Now all of you stand up. You have 60 seconds. We're going to get a countdown up on the screen. You have 60 seconds to find someone in the room that you don't know very well yet. And then decide who's going to share their testimony first. Don't start sharing yet. Just find someone that you don't know well yet. Go ahead. Go. Ready, set, go. Hey, you can start the countdown. Breck, you know your mom. What? You're practicing? No, you got 60 seconds, 40 seconds. All right, just find, just find someone and don't start yet. Don't start sharing yet. All right. All right, bring it in, bring it in. I think, I think we're good. I think we can move on to the next countdown. Okay, decide who's going to go first and you have 30 seconds to, to share your testimony. For person one, go ahead and go. Alan, you know Sherry way better than that. You can stay there, but I better see your lips moving. Okay, it's five seconds. Okay, that's time. Now it's person number two's turn. Person number two, you have 30 seconds to share your testimony. Okay, five seconds. Okay, okay, that's time, everybody. Bring it in right here. Bring it in right here. Okay, that's time, everybody shared. I should see lots more eyes. Extroverts, if you wanna do this again, you're gonna pay attention. Okay, person number one. Was, did, do you guys like that? Was that good? Okay, that was good practice. Now do it again. Person number one, ready? You got 30 seconds. Ready, set, go. You're gonna do it again. This is practice. We're practicing. I told you to pay attention. You're, do it again. Person number one, share again. 
Okay, okay, switch. Person number two. Person number two, it's your turn. Go for the second round. Yay. All right, all right, bring it in. All right. Worship team, if you were not in rebellion to the instructions that were given, you can go ahead and come up now. Extroverts, extroverts, bring it in. I see too many backs still. We can't move on. We, all right. All right, bring it in. Otherwise, we're not going to do this anymore. I'd like to do this kind of stuff more often. And the introverts are like, well, fine, I'm not gonna listen. All right, I hope that you, all right, hey, I hope you learned something. I learned something to not give you an inch because you'll take a mile. I hope that this was enriching and you now should have a 30 second testimony that you can share when the opportunity presents itself. And now you no longer have an excuse that, well, I just couldn't think of something to share on the spot. Isn't it good? Isn't it good when we remember what the Lord has done for us in our lives, when we think on the power uh, that has been manifested by the Lord in our life on our behalf? When we think and we remember what he has saved us from? Next week, we're going to explore even more of how we live in this already but not yet season. How do we reconcile the world of injustice, conflict, and unrighteousness, and what the tools God has given us to walk in victory are in the midst of this lost and dying world? For now, we're going to close out this service, continuing to worship the Lord corporately, with another song for the season. So stand and worship with us.